one of my old teachers in college was told, well, he got saved a little later in life, and when he showed up in church, somebody looked at him and said, you need to get different glasses. It was in the late 60s. He had wire rim glasses. Now, some of you may know what I'm referring to. In the late 60s, well, first of all, have you ever seen a class yearbook photo of people in the 50s? They all had those plastic rim glasses. And that's what everybody wore up until the fashion trends changed and wire rim glasses were more in style. And then you have John Lennon come around and everybody knows that famous iconic picture of him with those circle wire rim shaded glasses. And then they started becoming popular. And now, at least in this particular church, wire rim glasses was a sign that you were identifying with an ungodly, wicked culture. So wire rim glasses was in, in some way bad. So they preached against wire rim glasses in church. In some way, they believed that wearing wire rim glasses was defiling. Those are the kinds of things that we're going to talk about in this passage. Ideas or positions that might, might have a scriptural basis for them, and some do but they're not actually taught in Scripture. And as we look through this passage, we're going to see two things. The first one is that those traditions, even if they're good ones, cannot be enforced the same way we can enforce something stated in Scripture. The second is we're going to see what God actually wants instead of adherence to that tradition, whatever that tradition might be. And before we go any further... Let's take a second and pray. Father, we are grateful that we actually have a book that we can go to when we have questions. We can search it out. We can find answers. And when we don't have the answer to the question, we still have an answer as to how we're supposed to behave ourselves while we're searching for the answer or struggling to find out what it is. Because some things can be really contentious. And no matter what the answer happens to be, or no matter how much we're struggling to find an answer or whatever, we know that at least, at the very least, even if we don't have an answer, we have ways that we should conduct ourselves. Thank you for inspiring the scriptures that we have so that we know that what we're reading is true and perfect and that we can take the lessons we can learn from this passage and we can apply them. Thank you for that confidence that we have. Thank you for the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. And as I sit here today, Father, I pray that you'd help me to say everything you want me to, keep me from saying the things that you don't, and I pray that we walked out of here better people than when we walked in. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 15, verse 2, we're going to look at the priority of tradition. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 2, some of the Pharisees came up from Jerusalem to talk to Jesus and ask, 
Why do your disciples break the traditions of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Now, if we're not careful, we're going to read this like it's just a question. And I did that forever. I read this like it was just a simple question asked almost out of curiosity. It's not. This question is intended to be much more indignant than that because the Pharisees were absolutely appalled at what they saw. The act of not washing your hands ceremonially before you eat to the Pharisees was one of the most appalling, defiling things that a Jew could do. Now let me walk you through this. The, requ- the question reveals two things. First of all, it shows how offensive eating without a ceremonial washing was. Now to understand how to live life, the Pharisees looked to a book or a document called the Talmud. The Talmud is a collection of rabbinical sayings from thousands of years ago that comment on the law and state how we should live according to it or how Jews should live according, accordingly. It's their guide to life. But they actually consider the Talmud a little more authoritative than just a guide. I might have a guidebook on how to fix my car, but after I've fixed a few cars, I know there are a few tricks where I don't have to do that. I can skip some steps and still get the same thing done. They thought about the Talmud a little bit more than just a guide. If, if you want to consider the Talmud something, I want you to think of it this way. Think of it like government policy. Okay? We have Congress. They pass laws. All right? Now, to implement those laws, that's where the policy writers come in. The policy writers for each individual government agency will look at the law and say, how does our agency accomplish that? And they write all these steps and all these policies and what to do if there are certain exceptions. And there's more government policy than there actually is law. Same thing's true with the Talmud. When you think about the Talmud, think of it like government policy and the way they equated the two together. So when you break the Talmud, you're essentially breaking the law because the Talmud tells you how to fulfill the law. That's how they looked at the Talmud. They saw it as very authoritative. The Talmud states that every Jew needs to wash their hands before they eat, not for hygienic reasons. but for ceremonial purposes. And to not wash your hands meant that you defiled yourself. And when they, mean defi- and when they say defiled themselves, that's exactly what they mean, defiled themselves. Here is an exact quote from the Talmud. This is the exact quote about ceremonial hand washing. Concerning anyone who eats bread without washing his hands, it as if he engaged in sexual intercourse with a prostitute. That's how seriously they took ceremonial washing of your hands. They equated not washing your hands as equally as defiling as having sexual intercourse with a prostitute. And when they saw the disciples not doing that, they were absolutely outraged. They could not believe what they were seeing. Jesus is a rabbi, remember? They still called him a rabbi. They knew he was a teacher. And if he is not demanding his disciples ceremonially wash their hands, this is an outrage to them. An absolute outrage. 
The question also reveals how authoritative they held the traditions that are laid out in the Talmud. The Pharisees were more schooled in the Talmud than they were in the actual scriptures. And honestly, if you're going to teach out of the Bible, and anybody that does teach out of the Bible, this is a danger for all of us. We can get more schooled in the theological positions of Calvin, Arminius, John Piper, or whoever else, and we can get so caught up in the theological systems of other people and understanding them that we don't actually examine them in light of Scripture. We just teach them. It's a danger for everybody. It's not something that those of us teach are not aware of. We're very aware of it. But that's exactly what the Pharisees did. They taught through the Talmud. And the Talmud isn't all bad. I read through a good chunk of it, not nearly all of it, but I read through some chunks of it while I was studying for this. And there's some things in there that are really helpful. They're actually very insightful as far as understanding other passages of Scripture and what they would have been thinking back then, right or wrong. Actually, very helpful. But at the end of the day, the Talmud, no matter how helpful it might be in some cases, is still not God's Word. At best, it's an opinion piece. And we all know what opinions are like. Everybody's got a couple, and they all stink. Okay? It's just an opinion piece. In some ways, it's like our church constitution. It's a very important document. And the Talmud, if you're going to study the Old Testament and what Jews thought about the Old Testament and how they taught and what they believed and how they practiced and everything, the Talmud is a very important document. Our church constitution is the same way. If you want to know what we believe or how we practice different things or how we accomplish certain things set out that are laid out in the Bible, our church constitution is the document that says how this church does those things. You know, if we're going to um, do whatever, we have steps and policies laid out in our church constitution that tell us, here's how we're going to go about accomplishing that. Now, that's not bad. That's actually a good thing because it means things are orderly. They're, when something comes up, everybody goes, okay, here's how we do it. Zip, and that, that's what we do. Okay? There's nothing wrong with that. The thing that we got to remember is both documents, the Talmud and our church constitution and any other document, are only so good as far as they represent Scripture. And they all are subordinate to Scripture. Scripture trumps everything. There is nothing that is more authoritative than Scripture. And that is the problem the Pharisees had, is they took the Talmud and they took Scripture. And instead of doing this, placing Scripture over the Talmud and examining the Talmud in light of Scripture, they went like that. And they examined Scripture in the light of tradition and the Talmud. That's backwards, but that's exactly what they did. And Jesus confronts them immediately. And here's what he says. Look down at verse 3. And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? They ask him a question. How come your disciples don't wash their hands? Okay, well, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? He just flips it around on them. Flips that argument right on its head. 
Traditions are not commandments from God. They are man-made. Go down to verse 4, chapter 15, verse 4. For God commanded, this is Christ saying, for God commanded, he commanded this, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles your father and mother must surely die. The first part's the fifth commandment. They would have known this. The Pharisees knew the Ten Commandments backwards, forwards. They would have known exactly what Jesus said. And then he goes on in verse 5, and he says this. But you say, okay, you're supposed to honor your father and mother. If you don't, if you revile your father and mother or treat them poorly, you must surely die. You guys know this. But you say, here's what you guys say. If anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father and mother, or I don't have to honor you. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Now, this is not a polite response. This is not a simple conversation going back and forth. Okay? They are, the Pharisees are appalled at what they see, and this is not a simple question. This is more of an accusation on their part. Christ spins it around and says, okay, this, what I just read. This is not a polite response. He goes right after them, publicly humiliating them. The first thing he does is he points out their own hypocrisy. They have a tradition that they use to get around the true intention of God's laws concerning honoring your parents. The fifth commandment, which is what we see in verse 4, states that we should honor our fathers and mothers. Pharisees knew this. That's what Christ was referencing in verse 4. And that applies even when people are adults. Remember, these Pharisees aren't children. Okay? They're full-grown adult men, and he looks right at them and says, you're supposed to honor your father and mother, but you don't. That whole thing there applies to everybody. Adults, you still need to honor your fathers and mothers. The Pharisees weren't, and they knew it. And they weren't because of what we're going to talk about next. The Pharisees, what they would do is they would take another biblical teaching about dedicating something to God and they would use it as a way to enrich themselves. Here's how that worked. They, what the Pharisees would do is they would take something, whatever it is, the money they were given, the possessions they were given, whatever, it didn't matter, and they would pronounce it korban. That word korban is used in the parallel passage in Mark but it means to dedicate something or offer something to God. And when you pronounce something korban, you can't use it for anything else. So here's what the Pharisees would do. Their lives were dedicated to the work of God. And I'm sure some Pharisees were more pious than others. And I'm sure, you know, I'm sure some were just, it's all they knew and didn't know better. But there were enough of them that Christ needs to say this. Corban. Something's dedicated to the work of God. You guys take all of your possessions and the money that people offer you and you pronounce it Corban. Dedicated to God's work. So when, what happens when your parents come up to you and say, can't make the bills this month, we're starving, we can't eat. To keep your money, you say, I'm sorry, all the money I have is Corban. I can't give it away to help you. And that's actually what they did. They took a scriptural teaching, Corban, 
Dedication, offering. Think of our offerings that we just did. That's Corban. When you drop that in the plate, that's Corban. That's dedicated to God. That's gone. You can't take it back. It's not ours anymore. They would take a scriptural teaching that is in the Old Testament about dedicating things to God, they would take it and they would twist it. Have a biblical justification for it and use it to enrich themselves. They were just a bunch of greedy people, is what they were. They were greedy, manipulative, power-hungry people. And if you were here last week and you listened to Doug Bookman, he would, there were some things that he said would tell you that exact same thing. It was a crafty little loophole that allowed them to manipulate things to make sure they were teaching, keeping as much money as they could under the pretense of obedience and worship to God. And Christ actually puts it this way. <clears throat> you teach and practice your traditions in such a way that it makes void the word of God. That word void, very important word here. It means to deprive something of its authority. When you deprive something of its authority, does it have any effect on you anymore? No, it doesn't. The way the Pharisees taught and lived effectively removed the authority of God's word not only from their own lives, but from the lives of everybody else around them. That's why in the, in the next paragraph there, Christ calls them blind. The blind leading the blind. They don't even know. They are so blinded, they don't even know they're in error. And they are telling others to come with me. They can't even see straight. Come with me. Follow me. I'm leading you to God's righteous path or however they put it. And it's the furthest thing from the truth. The way they taught, the way they lived, how they practiced things, how they would take Scripture and twist it to their own purposes, and how they usurped the authority of Scripture with the Talmud. The only thing that they actually did well was send people to hell. That's about all they ever did. They made the word of God void. It had no authority over anybody because of what they taught and how they lived. And because of that, Jesus calls them hypocrites. You hypocrites, verse 7. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Being called a hypocrite is never a nice thing. I don't think I've ever heard of anybody enjoying being called a hypocrite. And as pompous as the Pharisees were, I bet they liked it less than most. Now for us in here, if we really honestly think about it, we're all a bunch of hypocrites. We are. Let's just face it. We all have inconsistencies. Every single one of us has a sin or a chunk of sins 
that if we're ever going to fall, if we're ever going to have trouble with something, it's going to be in this area or that area or this area, and yet we all show up in church and we sing songs and, and try and tell people about Christ. And all. We're all hypocrites, okay? So let's just face it. We're all hypocrites, but not like this. This is a whole different level of hypocrisy. We know we're fallen. We know we're not perfect. They didn't. The word hypocrite here simply means to be an actor. You're pretending to be something you're not. And he calls them an actor. You're not righteous. You're not, you're not even good. You're playing the part. There is absolutely nothing about them that is genuine. There's nothing about them that is true. There's nothing about them that is seeking truth, even. They're not even willing to admit, I don't know it all, but I'm looking. They, they think they've got it. And he calls them actors, hypocrites. It'd be like Marilyn Monroe playing a nun in a movie. If you don't know who Marilyn Monroe is, ask your parents. Or maybe I should say uh, Chris Evans being um, Captain America. He is not. Short, um, they weren't the real thing. They weren't following the law. They weren't seeking truth. The only thing they were were propagators of a false religion. Religious tradition has its place. It does. And traditions are not necessarily bad or even wrong. We had a tradition that I, in, in our church today that kind of went a little haywire. And I'm going to bring this up because it, it happened. M- many churches, especially 10, 15 years ago, when we were going to sing, hymnal. Well, technology transforms and changes and brings more things around, so we use PowerPoint slides. Okay, nothing wrong either way. But forever, because electricity is a modern invention, if you wanted to sing, you either had to go from memory or go with what was written on a page. Okay? Some people love having a hymnal in their hands. They can see the lines, they can see the musical notes, they can see all of that. Awesome. Use it. Some people, they're fine with this. Great. I've seen lots of hymnals with no musical notes. You go to other countries, lots of hymnals, no notes. All it is, words. That's it. There's no right or wrong way to do that. It's just the way we do it. You know, in this church, we usually use that. That's okay. Some churches, they won't use that. They'll just stick with hymnals. That's okay, too. Those are religious traditions that we have. That's fine. They're okay, but none of them are commanded in Scripture, and none of them can be enforced like they are. Religious traditions, no matter how good, how well-intended, or anything, are never more authoritative than Scripture, and they never take the place of Scripture. Religious Traditions, breaking them does not defile someone. But then Christ says, 
Here's what actually defiles you. Look at verse 10. Matthew chapter 15, verse 10. And he called the people to him and he said, hear and understand. In other words, Christ is saying, listen up. The Pharisees were talking about not washing your hands and how that defiles you. That is not right. But there is something that does defile you, and let me tell you what it is. And before I go on, I want to stop here and park it on something. Jesus Christ was a Jew. You think he ever washed his hands ceremonially before a meal? I'll guarantee you he did. I'll also guarantee you this. He knew the difference between what they said was defiling and what actually was. You'll notice he never condemns washing your hands in this text. I actually encourage people to wash your hands, especially if they're little children, because you never know whose nose that finger has been in. Okay? It's okay. One of the first things we do with children is we put them in that seat and we stick a spoon in their hand and try and teach them to eat with a spoon. And what's the first thing they do? They try and hit, they hit that food as hard as they can, and then they throw that spoon on the floor, and Mommy picks it up, and they put that spoon back in their hand, and they throw it on the floor, and then they realize, oh, I made a game. And we keep going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And while you're doing this game with this kid, they have another hand, which has mysteriously appeared, and they slap that food, and they try and push it in their face, and we all have a picture of our children with food all over their face. Okay, Washing somebody's hands before they eat, that's a good thing. You don't know where those hands have been. But it's not biblically required. Out of tradition, it's okay to do it ceremonially. But it's not biblically required. And that's what Christ is getting at here. Go down to verse 11. Here's what does defile you. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. And this saying actually scandalized the Pharisees. Look at verse 12. The disciples said, Do you know the Pharisees were offended when they heard the saying? Now the word offended here, a lot of times we translate that word offended to put a stumbling block in front of somebody. As I was looking through this passage, I had to wrestle with that one a little bit. If you're going to put a stumbling block in, some, in front of somebody, you're tripping them up because they're trying to get somewhere. This doesn't really fit. I mean, if you hit that one hard enough and pound on it, you can make it fit in there, but it's kind of like putting a round peg in a square hole. You hit it hard enough, and eventually you'll put it in there. But it doesn't really fit like it's supposed to. So after a little more digging, I realize that there's a better word to describe this, and that's the word scandalize. The Pharisees weren't tripped up. They were appalled. This was a scandal to them that the disciples would not wash their hands in a ceremonial way before they ate. It was an absolute scandal that Christ would contradict the religious, traditional teachings of the elders. Absolutely horrifying in their minds that he would do this. They were aghast at such a thought. And as we know, they were wrong. But they were horrified 
beyond what we can imagine that Christ would say what he said. So in direct contrast to the Pharisees and what they were saying to filed people, Christ says it's not what you eat or drink or whether or not your hands are washed that will defile you. It's what comes out of your heart that defiles you. Look down at verse 17. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth and passes into the stomach is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. Not the washing of your hands or not the washing of your hands. That's not even the point of defilement. The Pharisees were missing the point entirely. Here's what defiles you. Verse 19. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. The things people talk about give away a lot about who they really are. Once you get past the small talk, what people say reveals a lot about them. And naturally, here's what we are. We are people who have evil thoughts. We murder in our hearts. We're adulterous. We're sexually immoral. We steal. We lie. And we slander people what we are by nature. I've drilled this into my Sunday school class. When Adam and Eve sinned, the person whose fault it is humanly is Adam because he's the one that did it on purpose. Adam is the father of the human race. Every child born of Adam is a sinner. We have no way out of it. We're stuck with it. And we're born sinners first. We might look cute when we're born. We aren't. One of the first words we learn is no. It's, we are just that way. That's just the way we are. Jeremiah tells us in chapter 17, verse 9, that the heart is deceitful and wicked beyond our capability to understand. We don't even understand how wicked we are. Matthew chapter 5, verse 28. Christ tells us, that, tells us that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 1 John three fifteen, Everyone who hates his brother is already a murderer. Christ is going after the heart. That's the problem. And this isn't even really a a long list that we see here in Matthew. If you go into Galatians, we're going to see an entire list of things that shouldn't be a part of our lives. Galatians 5, verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident in this way. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, And that's not even the end of it. The final words say, and things like these. This isn't even an 
an all-inclusive list. This is just some of them. And then the end of the verse says, and everything else that looks like this is also works of the flesh. They say, but John, all those are actions. Yeah, you're right, but all those actions start in the heart first. They all start in the heart first. Verse 19 uses the word flesh, but it's the same meaning. It's our natural way we are to act this way. Now, we probably don't, we're probably not all of them. That's not what uh, being born a sinner means. It means everyone is touched by sin, not that you will commit all sins. As a matter of fact, we're born with defiled hearts, and all sins are of the heart first. That's where they start. The actions are just a result of it, like I said. Think about this. God didn't cast Satan out of heaven because of something Satan actually did, did he? Think about that. What did God find in his heart? What did Satan actually say? I will be like the Most High. He didn't throw Satan out for throwing a punch or doing something. He threw him out because of his pride. That's all it took. He didn't even have time to do anything. As soon as that thought entered his heart, gone. It's not the actions. The actions aren't good actions, but all those actions start in the heart. It's not what goes into the mouth. It's not what we eat or drink that is defiling. It's what comes out of our mouth, because what comes out of our mouth, what comes out of our body, what, comes, what we actually do starts here. And that's what Christ says. That is what is truly defiling, not whether we follow a religious tradition. The religious traditions have nothing to do with it. Even the good ones, and there are some good ones. But they have nothing to do with it. <clears throat> this part of the text shows us two things. The first thing this text shows us is what we just talked about, what actually defiles what actually defiles us is us. We can't blame it on anybody else. Every time somebody says, the devil made me do it, nope, we did it. We can't cast the blame on somebody else. Each of us individually have our own wicked, sinful heart. And it's ours. It's not somebody else's. It's ours. And everything we do that even resembles the list of sins that we see in Galatians chapter 5, that's our fault. We get to own it. That's what defiles us. The second thing this text shows us indirectly, mind you, but it is there, is what God actually does want. Here's what he does want. Here's what he wants. When we look at things that God likes and wants in our lives, we really have to look no further than two things. First of all, he wants us to accept Christ as, wants us to accept Christ as our Savior. 
We have no other way out of this mess other than through him. None. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that faith is not of yourself. It's a gift of God. It's not something you can work for. It is something we take by faith. We look at the sacrifice of Christ on the cross and we trust him to do what he said he was going to do. That's the first step. Salvation. If you don't have that, you got nothing. You're right back where you started. doesn't matter how often you come to church. Coming to church is another one of those religious traditions that some people think saves them. You can show up in this church till the day you die, and if you die without Christ, the only thing you did was warm a seat. You didn't change your soul. The second thing we look at, for those of us that are saved, God wants the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. It's a little further down in Galatians. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, kindness, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against those things. We can do those things all day long, and it's no problem. God highly recommends it. He even wrote it down for us. If we're ever going to wonder, what do I do in this situation? Just act that way, and a lot of the problems go away on their own. If we disagree with somebody about something, and we're going at each other's throats, um, Forrest was just talking to me about a meeting he had with somebody where some people, the cops, you had to call the cops? You had to call the cops, okay. Because why? They weren't acting like this. If everybody in the meeting, whatever they were talking about, I don't even know, but whatever the, if they were talking about it, and they disagreed on it, and they acted like this, Forrest wouldn't even have to call the cops because they were acting like adults. They would have been acting like adults, mature adults, and it would have been fine. They could have had a disagreement, and it would have been fine. But instead of that, they acted like a list of sins, anger, jealousy, wrath, whatever else. And the authorities have to get involved. If we disagree with each other on something, okay, but act this way while we're doing it. And if I'm going to pick on two people for us to relate to for this situation, I want you to think of David and Peter. Two people whose sins were so notable that they were recorded for history in Scripture. How would you like to be Peter? Recorded forever as the guy that denied Christ three times. How would you like to have the rest of humanity know this about you? I personally would not. Okay, No matter what I turned out like, I would not want everybody to know this. But that treachery there and betrayal, sedition of what Peter did is so important for the rest of his life that God recorded it for us. Even denying Christ, God took Peter and changed him into what he was later on in life. And now we see he wrote two books of the Bible for us, First and Second Peter. God used him in amazing ways. David had a one-night stand with somebody else's wife and then killed her husband later. 
He is the exact definition of adulterer and murderer. King David. But God says he's a man after his own heart. Why? How? For both of these people. How and why? The answer is simple. They both came in repentance and faith to have one thing, an undefiled heart. That's what they wanted. That's what they prayed for. And that's what they got. They weren't so concerned about religious traditions. They were important. Peter struggled with religious traditions all the way through Acts. You're going to hear about that next week. He had a really hard time with them. But he wanted Christ more. They weren't perfect people by any means, but they were humble. And they sought repentance with faith, desiring a pure and undefiled heart. That's what God really wants. If we want to be a biblically mature church, there's a couple of things we're going to have. We're going to have disagreements. And they're always going to be there. There's always going to be one of us or two of us or ten of us that think this ought to be done instead of this. Welcome to humanity. That's normal. We all have our own minds. We all have our own hearts. We all have our own backgrounds and experiences and thoughts and understandings about different things and different things that affected us in our past that cause us to make these decisions in the future. We've all got that. And we put all that together in a group of people and we're going to have disagreements. That's okay. We can have that. But we should also have humble hearts that seek to live out God's word according to God's word, not according to religious tradition. This trumps everything. Let's pray. Father, as we sit here today, this can be a really exciting passage, this can be a really tough passage, and this can sit everywhere in the middle. Father, I ask you to do one thing. I ask you to take us, take the Spirit of God, go into our heart, work on us about whatever it is that we need to be worked on. It could be a big issue. It could be a little thing. It doesn't matter what it is. If there's something that we are holding up higher than you or higher than your word, and we are submitting to that instead of you, whatever that is, changes. You are the creator of the universe. You are the one who declares us righteous. You're the one who instructs. You're the one who grants wisdom. You are the Father. And I pray that we would submit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen.